Mark Goodcamp, thanks so much for joining us. You've just returned from a week in Indonesia where you spent time with some of the more than 14,000 refugees languishing in a form of what can only be described as prolonged psychological torture left in a state of limbo where they have no work or study rights in Indonesia and little to no prospect of resettlement in a third country. Describe to our listeners what life is like for refugees in Indonesia. Look, life is incredibly tough. I met one man who fled um, Afghanistan uh, when the Taliban was still in power in 2001 um, and came down to Indonesia and has been waiting, you know, doing what the Australian government would prefer, wait for resettlement rather than try and get on a boat whilst the boats were still going. And he's still there like 18 years on. Others have been there for less time. Um, but the vast majority of them have been there for more than five, six years, um, waiting for resettlement. And the situation has certainly been exacerbated. I mean, here, you know, the whole stop the boats mantra has been celebrated. But over there, you can see the devastation um, that this has caused. Um, Indonesia used to be a short-term transit for people. Um, they would find a smuggler, they'd make their way to Christmas Island. That was shut off, obviously, after 2013. But what people don't know um, happened a year later in 2014 was that the government announced that no refugee who registered with the UN after July 2014 would be eligible for resettlement in Australia. So that has meant that those people who, you know, basically are there are in, you know, almost indefinite limbo. Um, wrongly or rightly, Canada, the US and other resettlement nations um, see Indonesia as Australia's part of the world. They say they resettle from other places. A trickle still go to those countries, um, but it is absolutely shameful that... Um, Australia has imposed that policy. Bear out for us a little bit more there, Mark, in terms of, because perhaps I think a lot of our listeners don't realise that this is not some distant situation from us. Australia, more specifically, the Australian government bears direct responsibility for the situation of these refugees in Indonesia. And go through some of those changes. You've mentioned some of them already, some of those regressive changes to Australia's policy approach to refugees in Indonesia in the last few years, which have meant precious few and indeed now no refugees in Indonesia have any prospect of being resettled in Australia. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, you go back even to the Howard years. Many of us in the refugee rights movement were saying, were saying that Australia should be resettling thousands from Indonesia if they really wanted people not to risk their lives. Then if they were given some some kind of assurance that resettlement would happen, then they would be far less likely to take that dangerous journey. That, that didn't really happen. It was only just starting to increase around 2011-12, up to about 400 a year. Inadequate, but higher than what it had been um, in the early 2000s. But now it's completely cut. So, yeah, what, what that means is, you know, they, they claim that by taking these punitive measures, these deterrence measures, it would stop refugees coming into Indonesia, but that hasn't happened. People may have seen the UNHCR. It puts out its report every refugee week 
um, for the previous year. And the 2018 report has refugees again at record levels. And yet, I think it's up to about 27 million now um, around the world. Yet the number of resettlement places by um, convention signatory countries continues to fall. A tiny percentage of the refugees around the world are being resettled. And Australia bears a lot of responsibility for that. And the other thing that has compounded this is that you know, there's this organisation called the International Organisation for Migration and they they sort of do the dirty work. They're paid by Australia. Um, they were being paid by Australia to provide $100 a month for the people waiting for resettlement in Indonesia. That's, you know, $3 a day. Um, but then from March 2018, Australia has cut that uh, for anyone who arrives after that time. And, you know, people who move from one city to another often aren't eligible either. So there's approximately 5,000 of the 15,000 there who get zero financial support. Um, and so that's just caused this large-scale destitution. And then no doubt the, or presumably, the situation is exacerbated by the fact that the Indonesian government, whether it's the central authorities or provincial city authorities, really don't provide any support themselves for these refugees, certainly not in the way of work or study rights and presumably not in the way of any welfare services, let alone welfare payments. No, that's correct. I mean, the Indonesian government... um, the, the president, Joko Widodo, actually made a decree in 2016 on refugees where he sort of finally acknowledged that refugees were not uh, in the same category as illegal migrants. I mean, that's a, that's a term that I also reject, uh, you know, illegal migrants. But he said that refugees are different and Indonesia should care for them, but it hasn't really moved beyond words with a couple of uh, um, exceptions. So in Maidan, in North Sumatra, the local authorities have opened the local schools to the refugee children. Um, There's been some talk by the local Jakarta government and the local Jakarta government relocated, we'll come back to this, I guess, but relocated some of the ones who were protesting in the middle of the city um, to a building and were providing one to two meals a day. But that was only going to be for a month. You know, there are groups of refugees, very articulate, talented people who are teaming up with human rights lawyers in Indonesia to kind of campaign for the Indonesian government to to give work rights, to give the right to go to school, um, to give the right to open a bank account, um, all of these things. Um, it's a long road, but, you know, they are trying their best to win those sort of things that would at least give a bit more immediate um, dignity to people's lives. You mentioned there the protests in central Jakarta involving some 1,000 refugees outside the UNHCR office, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. It's a reminder, isn't it, of how incredible, really, and inspiring it is that refugees, whether it's in Nauru or Manus Island or in the past uh, in detention centres on the Australian mainland, have taken matters into their own hands and tried to shape their own destiny by by embarking on, on protests to improve their own conditions. And it's no exception for refugees in Indonesia. Tell us a bit about some of that protest activity happening there. Yeah, look, there's been a bunch of protests when the detention centres were still around before Jakawi's um, decree in 2016. And then some of them subsequent to that. 
There's been regular weekly protests outside the UN and Makassar in South Sulawesi. There was a year-long protest in um, um, eastern Kalimantan in Balakpapan. And I met some of the leaders of that protest when I was there. Um, but also in West Jakarta, this group that went to the UN, they had been camped outside the detention centre. How desperate they were, some of them were wanting to go inside the detention centre because they thought they might at least get a meal. Um, rather than sleeping under tarpaulin on the street outside. So when they were kind of moved on from there, they kind of went, well, stuff it. We're going to go right to the middle of Jakarta, outside of the UNHCR, which is on a major thoroughfare right around the corner from the main sort of backpacker street, Jalan Jaksa. And um, suddenly the plight of the refugees in Indonesia, you know, understandably in a country of 270 million with their own issues of poverty and unemployment and inequality, the refugee issue has been quite marginal. But suddenly in the couple of weeks before I arrived, um, it became daily front page news in both the Bahasa and the English language press because they had taken their action to the middle of the city where they couldn't be ignored. Um, now this kind of embarrassed both the Jakarta authorities and the UN themselves. And as the numbers grew to around 1,000 a couple of days after I arrived, they then came down and announced to the refugees through interpreters that they'd found them some great accommodation um, and that they're bringing buses and everyone should go. And so people left in good faith, but then once they arrived, they saw it was basically a two-story disused army building um, with no running water, no electricity, no toilets. Um, and, you know, very, very, when I went to visit on two occasions, it's about 1,400 people there, very, very overcrowded. The, some Jakarta social agency had brought in five portaloos and some running water and a water truck for washing. But, you know, absolutely, people felt they were tricked in some ways. Um, and what we've seen just this week is an, a different group of refugees, single men this time, um, hundreds of them protesting outside the UNHCR again every day. Um, I just received a message from one of them this morning saying that those are continuing on a daily basis. And on Monday night, they're actually going to have a special like protests at the UN where they're going to invite all the refugees to have a protest about all the refugees who've taken their own lives in Indonesia. I mean, we know famously about the 12 who have done so or the one who was murdered in Manus and Nauru. But, you know, refugees have also taken their own lives due to depression and uncertainty and mental health epidemic in Indonesia and some have died of treatable diseases. So they're having a vigil for them and they're also discussing uh, taking their protests to the gates of the Australian Embassy as well because, you know, whilst they're frustrated with the UN and the IOM and the Indonesian government, they know that deep down the real problem is Australian government policy, why they're not going anywhere. As well as protest activity, there have also been a variety of initiatives undertaken by refugees to at least make their lives a little bit more tolerable. You wrote in New Matilda, for instance, about schools being run by volunteer refugee teachers and there's a number of other refugee-run projects. Tell us about some of that work. Yeah, so I, I, because I am part of Teachers for Refugees and I work with refugee kids 
in Australia, I had, you know, read about some of these schools set up by refugees themselves, surviving with international donations. A documentary got made about one of them called The Staging Post. So I was able to go up and spend a day in one of those schools, the Refugee Learning Centre in Chisarua. Chisarua, for, for listeners who aren't aware, is about two hours south of Jakarta. It used to be a place where people would stay temporarily. It's up in the mountains. It's a bit of a um, you know resort for local Indonesian tourism as well, up in the up in the hills. And um, but it used to be the place where people would search for a smuggler, go down to the south coast of Java, and get on a boat. So once that stopped happening and people realised they weren't going anywhere, the refugees themselves said, "Well, we've got to find some kind of dignity in this life." and they did get together and said, let's, let's start a school. So now in this um, city of Chisarua, which is a real centre of the Afghan refugee population, but also some other nationalities, there's about five or six schools there. I visited um, three of them in that region. Um, it's incredible, the dedication. I mean, you can see there that they're doing their absolute best to try and give these kids an opportunity learning English, math, science, geography, art. Um, it goes from, you know, kindergarten age right up to senior high school. And then what you're finding is some of the ones who, who do their sort of year 12 equivalent, um, and some of, the, some of the schools are following the Singapore curriculum, some are following the Australian curriculum, um, is that they, that some of these kids then do the um, online general, general education um, development certificate. And then they become teachers themselves in the schools they just graduated from. So many of them are these 19-year-olds, predominantly women, who are being the teachers in these schools. And it is, you know, they, they survive on voluntary uh, donations from um, overseas. Um, so all that the teachers receive in terms of um, payment is a bit of money for transport. Um, you know, minibuses from home to work. Other than that, it's all voluntary. But people are prepared to do it because it gives them a sense of purpose. It staves off depression and gives them an, an idea that they are developing their skills uh, whilst they are waiting interminably for resettlement. Finally, Mark Goodcamp, what can listeners do to offer the hand of solidarity to our refugee brothers and sisters in Indonesia? I understand, for instance, donations can be made to perhaps, I don't know whether this uh, to specific schools that you mentioned, but uh, certainly to some of the other uh, refugee-run projects happening there. Yes. Um, I mean, all the schools are listed on the... Um, uh, RAIC Indonesia webpage that's the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Information Centre Indonesia so they list all the schools that you can support either by sending education materials or direct donations or by volunteering your time to do Skype lessons um, there's there's a collective of um, women who are having a textile um, working group um, making textiles to sell. There's a karate um, school that's been set up by refugees for young people. Um, so there's all kinds of initiatives, but, you know, and it's very worthwhile supporting those financially or by visiting or donating your time. The thing I found even with those people deeply committed to these initiatives is that very much not far from the front of their mind is the issue of resettlement for themselves as well. You know, obviously that is what underpins everything 
And so I guess I'd, you know, call for people to, you know, share the news about the refugees in Indonesia. There are Facebook pages called, you know, the Refugees and Asylum Seekers in Indonesia, you know, promote what's happening. We in the Refugee Action Coalition set up a petition before the federal election to end the ban on the resettlement of refugees out of Indonesia. Um, so there, even though Manus and Nauru has taken, you know, preeminence for obvious reasons in our campaign, we need to be raising awareness. And I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to do this interview today because I think everyone in Australia needs to know about this you know, situation on our doorstep, which again is a product of Australian policy.